I don't know whether I'm looking forward to preaching this sermon. It's one of those sermons that you write and think, this is quite hard-hitting. So, um, you know, we love preaching God's Word in this church. We love preaching the Bible. But you have been warned. And because it's a hard-hitting sermon, uh, I'm going to make sure to pray to begin. Um, So let's pray as we come to read from God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us. You have revealed yourself to us in your Word in the Bible. And we thank you for the Gospel of Matthew that we've been reading together as a church. You have spoken and taught us so much from this amazing Gospel about the glory and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ and how to be a disciple in the Kingdom of Heaven. Lord, I pray you would teach us again this morning, that you would move in this place, that your Holy Spirit would teach our hearts and our minds to understand what this passage is saying to us. So come Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, would you glorify your Son in this place? In Jesus' name. Amen. Do you want to be great? Do you want to be great here on earth? Do you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? That's the question we're going to be dealing with this morning. Do you want to be great here on earth? Do you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Because after the transfiguration, after Jesus goes up on a mountaintop and his glory shines forth before three of his disciples, he and his disciples walk back down the mountain. And when they get to the bottom, the disciples that have stayed at the bottom of the mountain are starting to jostle for position and for power. Maybe it's because three of them went up the mountain and the rest of them were left at the bottom. They started to think, oh, does that mean those three are are greater than the rest of us? So the disciples at the foot of the mountain are arguing about who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God. They want to be great in the kingdom of God. And so I'm going to read you what happens at the beginning of Matthew 18, Matthew 18 verses 1 to 9. And we're going to start to unpack this question about greatness. So Matthew 18 verses 1 to 9 and the words will appear on the screen. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. I hope you can understand why this might be a heavy hitting sermon having read that passage. The disciples come to Jesus in Matthew 18 and they ask him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And you know what? If I had been Jesus in that moment, I think I would have just given a very simple answer. I would have said, I think it's me. 
Um, that's, that, that's what Jesus could have said. Can, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's God who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus is much, much wiser than I am. And he chooses to use this moment to teach his disciples about humility. In verse two, he calls a child to him and he gets the child to stand in the midst of the group of disciples. You know, the kids have already gone out to their kids work, but if they were in, maybe I would embarrass one of them by getting them up the front and making them just stand at the front in front of you all like Jesus did in this moment. Um, I can see Chris and Gemma saying that their kids definitely wouldn't do that. No. <laughs> I want you to imagine this moment as Jesus brings this child into their midst. I imagine his gentleness and his kindness to this child. He wasn't about embarrassing the child, I'm sure. He's a loving, compassionate Lord, isn't he, Jesus Christ? And so you can just imagine him being gentle and kind towards this child and getting this child in the midst of the disciples. Now notice also that Jesus calls the child and the child obeys Jesus's call. So Jesus calls and the child comes and stands in the midst of them. I think that's important for understand, understanding what it means to be childlike as we work our way through this passage. So Jesus stands in the midst of his disciples with this child alongside him, and he says this, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I want to emphasize the word turn because that's a word that is used throughout the Bible and it is the word for repentance. It, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you need to turn, you need to change, you need to repent, you need to convert your hearts in a sense in this moment. Instead of jostling for position of importance, instead of arguing amongst yourselves about who is the greatest, instead of trying to decide who's going to be the prime minister of heaven, if I'm going to be the king, you guys are arguing who's going to be the prime minister of heaven. You're seeking recognition for yourself. You're seeking glory for yourself. You need to turn from that attitude. You need to repent of that attitude and you need to become like a child. This is what Jesus is teaching his disciples. Now, in ancient Israel, children were essentially of no social importance. We live in a society that, that very much looks after and honours children, which is a good thing. But in ancient Israel, children were treated slightly differently. They were very submissive, or they were meant to be very submissive. And, and in lots of ways, they were considered... Um, uh, well, maybe a burden, perhaps. They were certainly, it was certainly required in ancient Israel that children submit to the will of adults. And, and I can, if you read Galatians 4 verse 1, this is what Paul writes in Galatians 4 verse 1. I mean that the heir, so long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. That gives you a little picture, perhaps, of how children were treated in ancient Israel. That children, before they came of age, before they entered ad adulthood, were perhaps treated a little bit like slaves. Now, I'm sure there was a, dif a difference there, but certainly children were servants who submitted. They were kind of the lowly of society in this ancient Israel um, environment in which Jesus is teaching. And so when Jesus calls this child into the midst and says, you need to become like a child, what he's saying is, you need to accept a lowly position you need to submit yourself to the will of others like a child would 
in ancient Israel. This isn't about childishness. I remember Francis a couple of weeks ago, I think, prayed a prayer and he said, we don't want to be childish, but we want to be childlike. It was a really well-worded prayer. We, being a childlike is not about being childish. It's not about being stupid. It's not about lacking deep thought. It's not, I mean, what else? Did you, it's not about running around like crazy little children doing whatever. It's about accepting lowliness and submitting to those who are your superiors. That's what childlikeness is about. This is what this child is designed to be an example of. And so Jesus is saying, turn, stop seeking to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Stop seeking to be the greatest and show the humility of a child. Accept a lowly position. Seek to serve others rather than to raise yourself up. Now, this is vital in the Christian walk for receiving salvation. Unless you confess that you are lowly and weak and in need of a saviour, you will never get saved. This is what it is to become a Christian. It's to say, I have done things wrong. I cannot save myself. I need someone to rescue me. Jesus is the saviour who comes to rescue me. If you're not a Christian and you think, I'm a good person, I don't need a saviour, I'm doing things well, you are a long way from Christian salvation. But if you're not a Christian and you're saying, I'm broken, I need help, I'm struggling, that there are sufferings in my life, there are things not quite right in my life, then you are very close to salvation. Jesus can save you, Jesus can be your help, he can rescue you from your sin and from your life into eternity. We sung that song, didn't we? God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 16. What an amazing promise. So if you're not a Christian, you're feeling like you need salvation, cry out to Jesus today. Believe in him as your help and he will rescue you into eternal life. So this humility that Jesus is teaching about is vital for becoming a Christian. It's also vital for our walk as Christians day by day. Once we've become Christians, we need to show the humility of a child. I used to be quite brash and blunt about this and tell people that I want to be great in the kingdom of God. I was unafraid to say that. And I like to think that there was some part of me that was seeking to be great in the way that Jesus describes in this passage, where he says in verse four, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But I used to be unafraid um, years ago of saying I want to be great in the kingdom of heaven. But I think Jesus is calling for a different attitude than going around telling people you're going to be great in the kingdom of heaven. I think I've moved on in my journey to a place where now I just say, I want to do my best for Jesus. I love him and he has saved me and rescued me and he loves me. I want to do my best for Jesus so that he gets the glory. And if that means being a nobody to serve and love and submit to others, then that's great. That's fantastic, as long as Jesus gets the glory that he is worthy of. And in fact, instead of saying, I want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, I've moved to a new place where I pray that others would surpass me. I pray that you guys would be great in the kingdom of heaven. And I pray that I might be able to serve you in some way in order that you'd be raised up to the people who God has called you to be. I think that's what Jesus is teaching us about 
It's about being humble, wanting to see others be great in the kingdom of God, serving and loving and caring for others. It's having that humility. And what a fantastic church this would be if every single one of us lived in such a way that we wanted to raise up others to be great in the kingdom of God. We wanted them to have them to have the resources and the equipment and the things that they needed to thrive in the church and in the kingdom. So we need to be humble to receive salvation in the first place. And we need to be humble in our walks as Christians day by day by day. And this is challenging. This is challenging. Pride is subtle often in our lives. It creeps in and we desire great things for us for ourselves. But Jesus is challenging his disciples and he's challenging us this morning. Repent, turn from pride, turn from serving yourself and vying for position. Turn to humility, accept lowliness. And maybe there's some of us this morning who need to respond to that who need to confess to Jesus that we have been proud, that we have been seeking to be great ourselves rather than seeking to build up others. And if that's you, pray now as I preach, but also when I'm finished, why don't you come to the front and receive prayer? I'd love to pray for you. You know, when I was growing up as a kid, my parents used to tell me that they knew I was a sinner. They were amazing parents. They t- used to tell me that they knew I was a sinner because I used to love to boast. So this is, this is a journey. This is something that I've struggled with with pride. And God has humbled me over time, I hope. But I'm still not there. I'm not like Moses who could write down in the Old Testament that he was the humblest man in all the world, which is amazing. He could write that and it must have been true because um, it's in God's word. And so I'm on a journey. So I'd love to pray with you if you're also on that journey of seeking to be humble, to be childlike before Jesus Christ. Come for, come for prayer. I'd love to pray with you or grab someone who you trust um, in the room and pray with them. So that's the first bit of teaching that Jesus brings in this passage. But he goes on in verse five. Don't just humble yourself. Also welcome and receive those who are seen as nothing in society. He says, welcome, welcome these children, receive these children. Our sinful, prideful instinct is to build relationships with the lofty and the powerful, to to make friends with people who are going to benefit us. You can sometimes see this in the workplace, you know, making friends with the boss in order to get the promotion, this kind of activity. And that's our instinct as sinful people is we want to build relationships with the lofty and the powerful. But Christ-likeness is the opposite of that. It's to love and to receive and to build relationships with those who are treated as nothing in society, to make friends with the children in ancient Israel. And so when Jesus calls this child to him, he's demonstrating what it is to welcome a child into the midst of the disciples. The disciples probably looking around at each other going, what is he doing? Why is he putting this grubby little child to the front and involving this child? There's a special place in Jesus's heart for children. Doesn't that story just demonstrate this so clearly? There's a special place in Jesus's heart for children. And so I I wanna take this opportunity to encourage you to welcome anyone who's seen as lowly in society. But I also wanna take this opportunity to invite you to volunteer, to help with our children and youth work. We need volunteers for that ministry. And we love our children. We want them to grow up loving Jesus Christ, believing in Jesus's death upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And we need to step up as a church and to serve them and to love for them and care for them. So if you've got capacity, if you've got time, why don't you volunteer to be on our children or our youth team? We would love to have you involved in that. But I want to ask you a question on this, on this principle of receiving the lowly in society. What have you done to build relationships 
with the outcasts and the lowly. What have you done? Please heed Jesus in this challenge. Please listen to him and seek to receive those people who the non-Christians in this world have no time for at all. Because when you receive such a person as that, when you bless them, when you feed them, when you invite them into your home, you are receiving and blessing and honouring Christ himself. Isn't that an amazing incentive to love people and to care for people and to welcome people who they're not, they, they, don't have the, they don't have the power or the resources to do anything good for you. It's simply about loving them and caring for them. When you do that, it's like you're receiving Christ himself. You're honouring Christ himself. And when you get and stand before the judgment seat before Christ, Christ, Christ will say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. You received me, you fed me, you looked after me. So Jesus says, turn from pride and show humility. More than that, welcome those who are lowly in society. It's like stackable teaching here, isn't it? He's made one point, now he makes a second point, which is linked to that point. And so he's made two points. Be humble, accept a low position, don't seek recognition, but serve others. And then underneath that, welcome, receive and love and care for those who are unimportant in this world. And then he goes on to the next layer of teaching where he teaches about sin and temptation. And the reality is that when you read Matthew 18, verses 6 to 9, you have to say that sin is very, very serious. There's a seriousness to to sin in the words that Jesus teaches in verses 6 to 9. Now, we believe in grace in this church. We believe that none of us have earned our way into God's good books. It's not by doing good works that God receives us. No, we are saved by grace. We believe in forgiveness. We believe that Jesus died on the cross carrying the sins of the world so that whoever believes in Jesus can be forgiven. Whoever they are, whatever they've done wrong, their sins can be forgiven if they believe in Christ. And so you don't get into the kingdom of heaven by good works. You get into the kingdom of heaven by believing in Christ and receiving grace, which is unmerited favour, blessing from God that you don't deserve. We believe in grace. We believe in forgiveness. I think we preach it every week, at least we certainly try to. But we still take sin very seriously. We still take sin very seriously because sin is disobeying and dishonouring our Father in heaven, whom we love and adore. In fact, when you become a Christian, you begin a battle with sin. Before you were a Christian, maybe you didn't believe in God. You tried to be a good person, probably. But you're not really in a battle with sin. You're just going through life doing what you want, essentially. You're not in a battle with sin because you don't believe in God. So you don't really know what sin is. But when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you receive the forgiveness that is spoken about in the New Testament, suddenly you're filled with a desire to honour God and to follow him. And so your battle with sin begins when you become a Christian. I want to encourage you to take sin very, very seriously. It's an important, important thing. And I worry that sometimes, sometimes in the church where we preach grace, we've become too familiar with sin. We have an ease with sin. We we love to talk about forgiveness and grace, and, and rightly so, because they're amazing gifts from God. But 
we sometimes drift through life and we're too familiar with sins in our lives. We become too at ease with sin. And I think we should be the opposite. We should believe so fully and wonderfully in the grace we have received that we should say, I'm going to fight sin in my life. I know that God is good. He has forgiven me. He saved me. He's rescued me. He showed grace to me. I know that God is good. And therefore, I'm going to fight sin in my life. I'm going to stop doing things that dishonour my father in heaven because I know that when God tells me not to do something, it's because he's good and he loves me. And I know when God tells me to do something, it's because he's good and he loves me. So I want to encourage us to be Christians who love grace, who proclaim grace, who believe in grace, who don't think that we've got in because we're the best people. No, we've got in because we've received mercy and forgiveness for the things we've done wrong. But when you become a Christian, take up your armour. Take up your weapons and begin to fight sin in your life because sin is serious. Verses six and seven, Jesus says, don't be the one who causes other people to sin. Verse six, leading a little child astray into sin is an awful thing, according to Jesus, isn't it? Look at what, look at what Jesus says. This is, he is not pulling his punches here, Jesus. If you're someone who leads a little child to sin, Jesus says it would be better for that person for a millstone to be tied round his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. That is strong language from Jesus Christ, isn't it? Holiness is a community project. We work together to grow in Christ-likeness. We work together to fight sin. We, we shouldn't be afraid to lovingly and wisely pointing out sin in others' lives, and we should be open to receiving the same instruction from others. We work together to grow in holiness. We are not, if we're in a community project fight, fighting for holiness, fighting against sin, we are not to be the people who bring temptations and lead others astray, because what Jesus says here is, is very, very strong. One of the reasons we do membership in this church is because holiness is a community project. We say, yeah, I'm going to be a member. I'm going to join with this family and I'm going to grow with this family in holiness. And so I want you to consider how your actions, words and example might cause others to fall into sin, might bring temptation into other people's lives. I want to give you just three examples to prompt you to think and to challenge yourself and to examine yourself. Coarse joking, making jokes that are inappropriate, you're causing the other person's mind to go somewhere where it shouldn't, is an example of leading someone into sin. Gossip, talking behind someone's back and gossiping is leading someone else into sin, giving them temptation to then take that gossip and share it with someone else. And the third example I want to give you is slander, slagging people off behind their backs, speaking negatively about them. I don't believe I've experienced much of that in this church, praise God. But I know that when I was in a secular workplace, those three things were all over the shop in, my, in the environment that I worked in. Slandering people was seen as a way of raising yourself up within the workplace, criticising others behind their back. When you do that, Jesus has used strong language, so let me use strong language. When you do that, you are functioning as an agent of Satan because you are causing sin to grow in the world around you. If you're causing others to sin, if you're leading others into temptation, you're not doing God's work in that moment. You're sinning and doing Satan's work in that moment. So I'd encourage you 
don't lead others into sin. Don't participate in those examples. Maybe you can think of other ways in which you tempt other people to sin. If that's you, pray for forgiveness, pray for mercy this morning and ask God to transform you by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you might not participate in those things anymore. In verse 7, Jesus doesn't just teach his disciples, he pronounces a curse. He says, woe to the world, woe to the world for bringing temptation to sin. The world causes people to stumble. If you aren't a Christian and you have in sought to entice Christians away or mocked or scorned Christianity, Jesus speaks to you in verse 7. Woe to the world for causing temptations to sin to come. So if you're a non-Christian and you've tried to tempt others into wrongdoing, there's a call here for you too to ask for mercy and to repent of your sin. Verses 8 and 9, Jesus moves on the conversation again, not just to, to talk about tempting others, but verses 8 and 9 is a call to focus on ourselves. Don't just tempt others but seriously flee temptation yourself. Again, these verses are strong language. Let me read them to you again, verses 8 and 9. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus speaks plainly here about the doctrine of hell. Eternal fire is mentioned in verse 8. Hell of fire is mentioned in verse 9. And so there's a, there's a strong warning that comes. If you do not repent of sin and believe in Jesus Christ for mercy, you will burn in hell. This is the teaching of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 18. Please don't miss an opportunity to repent this morning. When you hear these serious words, when you hear these warnings, that's an invitation to receive the mercy of Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't bring these warnings hoping that you won't listen to him. He brings these warnings because he loves people and he wants them to turn and repent and believe in him. And so if you're listening to this and you're, you don't know Christ, you haven't put your faith in him, I urge you again, turn and believe in Christ. He loves you and he has salvation for you, eternal life, forgiveness and mercy, a relationship with God the Father for you. Turn and believe. Believe in Christ today. Do not leave yourself in a position where you burn in the eternal fire and the hell of fire mentioned in verse 8 and verse 9. But Jesus here is speaking with his disciples and he's encouraging his disciples to take sin seriously. And really what this teaching is about is fleeing sinful, sinful temptation. Be, don't be passive in fighting sin, but be positive in fleeing from temptations. And so I want to get really practical here with some more examples for you to take and apply to your own life. We need to be deliberate in fleeing sin. I don't think we're meant to deliberately chop our hands off and gouge our eyes out, but we need to be practical and deliberate about fighting sin in our life because we love God, don't we? We want to honour him and glorify him. We don't want to slip into sin. We don't want to call others into temptation. We want to grow in holiness. And so we want to take action to help us in our walks with God. Let's get really practical here. If you use the internet to watch porn or to look at images that you shouldn't, 
Get software that blocks those sites or set yourself up with an accountability partner. I use something called Covenant Eyes where I'm connected with several other guys who I know and I get reports on what they've been watching and vice versa to make sure that it's not a temptation, it can't happen. And if you see something that like one of my friends has, has looked at something, we get on the phone straight away and go, hey, what's going on? What's happening? We use Covenant Eyes software. If, if, those, if, you, if that is a temptation for you, is that, if that's a sinful temptation for you, do take the steps, get the software, get what you need so that you don't fall into that sin. If you have problems with alcohol, with drinking too much, Ephesians 5 verse 18 says, do not get drunk. You need to stop drinking. T don't take away that temptation. Don't go to the pub late. Do friendship in another environment. Do it in a coffee shop rather than in the pub. Take away those temptations. Flee temptations because we do not want to dishonour the God whom we love. If computer games and TV programs take up all of your spare time, so you leave no room for prayer, you're not a prayerful person because all you do is watch TV, binge watch TV or binge watch playing uh, computer games, cancel your subscriptions. Get rid of your TV licenses. I'll tell you the truth, I deliberately don't have Sky Sports because if I know if I did, I would spend all my life watching like the most ridiculous sport. Like I'd watch like fifth tier football on Sky Sports football because I just, I love sport. So I, I know that I can't have Sky Sports because if I do, I would just waste so much time watching it. Now sport, sport is good. There's good things about sport and you can find the right time. But don't waste your life watching TV programs or playing computer games or watching Sky Sports. Take those things away. Cancel your subscriptions. Get rid of your TV license if that's what you need to do to take away this temptation to sin. If a relationship, a friend or even a boyfriend or a girlfriend is causing you to sin, be serious about that sin and potentially call an end to that relationship. Or, or just be wise about where you meet that person so that the particular sin that they like to lead you into isn't available in those locations. If a lack of sleep causes you to be grumpy, if not exercising properly makes you a horrible individual to be around, or not eating well causes you to sin, makes you grumpy, makes you moan and groan, which is also described as sinful in the Bible, go to bed earlier, go for a run, start to eat properly. We need to be practical about fighting sin. Yes, it's a spiritual battle, and the Holy Spirit dwells within every Christian and helps us. He's called the helper, and he walks with us. But we also need to take practical steps in this battle with sin in order that we might grow in holiness. We love Jesus Christ. We want to honour and glorify him. We want to be like him. Therefore, we go to war with sin in this church. Examine yourselves this morning, brothers and sisters. How are you sinning? What can you practically do to fight that sin and grow to be more like Jesus Christ? Let me finish with one more recommendation, one more thought in this battle with sin. Our most powerful weapon in our fight with sin is not those practical things that I've listed. Those, though, although those things are really important, there's something that's more powerful in our fight with sin. Christ himself is our greatest ally and weapon. Christ himself. And so you don't just stop doing things that are wrong. You instead start filling your life with Jesus. As you turn, you turn from sin and you turn to Christ. And so I want to encourage you, fill your heart with love for Christ.
Fill your mind with knowledge of Jesus Christ and fill your life with worship to Christ. Because that's what this is what this battle requires. It's a turning away from sin and then filling your life with Jesus instead. I tell you, you will not regret that decision to turn to Christ, filling your mind and heart and life with Jesus. And sin will retreat. It says that Satan flees when we turn to Christ. I want to read one passage to you as an encouragement to end this sermon. I'm going to read from 2 Peter 1, verses 5 to 9. I love these verses. 2 Peter uh, 1, verses 5 to 9. This is what it says. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Do you know why I love those verses? It's because Peter lists all these wonderful qualities that I want to have in my life. Brotherly affection and love and knowledge and self-control. I want to add these things to my Christian walk. But in verse 9, what Peter says, do you see it? If you aren't growing in these things, if you aren't increasing in these things, it's as if you're blind because you've forgotten that Christ died to cleanse you from those things. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And do you know what that means? If you forget, you will start to lose these qualities. But if you remember, if you keep reminding yourself of what Christ has done and the cleansing that he has brought, you will grow in these things day by day, more love, more brotherly affection, more knowledge, more self-control, all these great qualities, more steadfastness, more godliness in your life by remembering what Christ has done for you. That's the reason we do communion every week, because we want to remember, remember, remember that Jesus died on the cross to cleanse us from our former sins. That's why we preach Christ every week. It's not that you forgot, you may have forgotten it, But from last week, we want to preach it over and over again to remind you what Jesus has done for you so that we would grow as Christians in these amazing qualities. And so I want to lead us in a response. And firstly, I want to lead us in a time of quiet. And I suggest that during this quiet, you use it as a time to confess. To confess that you have been proud rather than humble. You've sought your own greatness and your own recognition rather than seeking to serve others and to lift others up. Maybe you want to confess that you haven't been someone who's built relationship with the least in society. That actually you've, you've, you've built friendship with people who could do benefit to you but not love those people who are the outcasts in society. Maybe you want to confess that you've led others into temptation and sin. And you've seen how serious that is in this passage in Matthew chapter 18. You want to confess that sin and ask for forgiveness. Or maybe you've not taken sin seriously yourself. You've not fled temptation. There's an area of your life where you see that you are, you are just giving in to temptation over and over. As you confess in this time of quiet, remember Christ died for you. He shed his blood 
so that you might be forgiven. And so ask for mercy with confidence that God will answer that prayer. And ask that Christ, who receives little children to himself, will also receive you in mercy. So let's have a moment of quiet and then I will lead us in prayer. Let's confess. Heavenly Father, we thank you that when Jesus taught us to pray, he included that line, forgive us our sin as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And so, Lord, we come to you and we confess that we have sinned and we ask for your forgiveness. Lord, we confess that we have been proud, full of ourselves, sought our own glory and recognition rather than humbly loving and caring for others. Lord, we confess that we have built relationships with the people it's easy to build relationships with and love people who, who can benefit us rather than loving and caring for those people who need love and care the most. Lord, we confess that we have led others into sin by our action, by our words, by our deeds. We've brought temptations to others and led them into sin. And we confess that we have not taken sin seriously. We love grace, Lord. We love forgiveness. We thank you for the unmerited favour you've given to us. But Lord, we confess that sometimes we we are too familiar with sin and not really fighting this battle that you have brought us into as Christians while we're here on the earth. So we thank you that you are a God of mercy. We thank you that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that we are forgiven in him. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. May he help each of us grow in holiness today. And Lord, I pray that holiness would be a community project here, that we would work together to grow in Christ-likeness day by day, by day. We thank you for forgiveness and we glorify you. I pray if anyone's feeling condemned this morning, I pray you would take away that condemnation and bring just knowledge of forgiveness. You might bring conviction, Lord. We, we pray for conviction, but not condemnation. And I pray we would know you, you love us and you care for us and we still have a relationship with you, but you are growing us. You're helping us. You're moving us the next step on today. And I pray you would do that for your glory in the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for forgiveness. We celebrate the death of Christ. We celebrate grace because we need your grace. We need your forgiveness. We're so grateful for it. Lead us out, of, out from this place, Lord God, in holiness we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you one more, one more verse from James 5, 16 to finish. In James 5, it says this, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. 
it's good to confess sins to God. I think it's part of how we should pray to God and what we've just done. But there is also power in confessing sins to each other in the church. So we, we don't have a confession box where you confess all your sins to the, the priest or the pastor so that I have to do all the listening to all your sins. But we are a church. We're a body of believers. And so if you want to confess sin to someone, I would, I would really encourage you to do it today or, or early this week. Get on the phone to someone and just say, hey, that Sunday when we had the sermon on sin, I was thinking of this and I want to confess it to you. Because when you share it and bring it into the light, that means it's suddenly become a community project for us to help you and to pray for you and to grow together. So if there is something that has come to mind during this time, I'd encourage you to confess it to someone whom you love and trust in this room. If you want to come and talk to me, you're welcome to. And if there's a long line of people who want to talk to me, then fine. But, you know, it's a community thing. It's, we work together as a church. So I just want to encourage you to do that if there's something that's really been convicting you in your heart.